Welcome to BuildCast, where we delve into the backstories of experts and other players in the built environment to reveal their journey and how they got built. Join us in our conversation to learn from their life experiences, to be the catalyst for innovation, and to make sustainable building mainstream building. Now here is your host and the principal thinker at Build Tank Inc., Robbie Schwartz. In episode 16 of 2022, I spoke with Fred Malik about the Fortified Construction Program. The Fortified Construction Method is a voluntary construction standard and program designed to help protect homes against severe weather events. Primarily, we're talking about wind-driven damage events like hurricanes and tornadoes. Fortified Construction was created from decades of research that the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, or IBHS, has conducted. Their lab allows for the building and testing of full-size houses in a controlled environment. Now, in this episode, I'm learning about a new IBHS program that has just been released. It's of great interest to me because of my new work as the Boulder County Marshall Fire New Homes Building Advisor. I spoke with Dan Gorham, a research engineer focusing on wildfire and its impact on the built environment at the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety. Like the Fortified Program's focus on severe wind events, IBHS has focused its attention now on wildfires and their impact on homes. They have recently launched a new Wildfire Prepared Home Program, which again is a research-driven program, but this time it's designed to reduce risk and better protect homes against wildfire. Dan was super informative and a pleasure to speak with as he walked me through the IBHS research findings and the new Wildfire Prepared Home Program. So sit back and enjoy this episode. Hi, this is Robbie Schwarz, and thanks for joining us on the BuildCast. Today, I am speaking with Dan Gorham, who is a research engineer focusing on wildfire and its impacts on the built environment at the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety. Hi, Dan, how are you? Hey, Robbie, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. Yeah, it's great to meet you in, in person or in virtually anyway uh, for the first time. So I really appreciate you joining us on the BuildCast. And I wanted to start with uh, an understanding of um, engineering and this focused on wildfire um, there. And also, ultimately, um, how you got interested in linking wildfires with the built environment. Sure. So I'll, I'll go back to my fourth birthday when I had at a firehouse and I, I wanted to be a firefighter. So that's where my parents allowed me to have my fourth birthday. And I didn't get to drive the engine, but I kind of had that vision. And at 18 years old, I joined the fire department. And that's kind of the trajectory towards getting my degree in fire protection engineering. Generally, as a firefighter at the East Coast of Maryland, where I was, you were responding to structure fires, so fire inside of the box. And, and traditional fire protection engineering really looks at that. Um, I had a summer part-time job working for the state parks and they were looking for volunteers to join a wildland crew and so I did that as well and got some wildland fire experience and so kind of had this structural firefighting background with a degree had this interest and experience with wildland firefighting and kind of the merging converging of those two is is fire engineering and taking the principles of fire dynamics fire behavior understanding material response and instead of just looking at fire inside the box looking at how exterior fires like from wildland fires can impact structures 
great, great. So have you um, done any construction uh, or other working with houses to uh, blend those two interests? So I've done a little bit of informal, um, you know, nothing, nothing professional, kind of helping a friend, doing some of my stuff myself. I think, you know, one of the opportunities I've had at IBHS is to work with colleagues of mine that have decades of experience in building. And so where I may not have all the firsthand experience, a lot of times because of the work that we do, we're building full scale structures as they're building a home. I'm going to out there and able to talk with them through it and sometimes swing a hammer and better understand that. And it's really critical. I may not have the building science background, but understanding that aspect of it is really important to drive and inform the research that we do because because ultimately when we think about a building's resilience you you don't just think about individual components you think about as a system and that to me as i understand it is what building science is yeah definitely it's it's definitely that systems approach i think also that one of the things that might um impact your research from a building science perspective are is kind of the the pressure dynamics that happen happen during fire inside and outside the house and uh, in, you know, we recently had a, uh, the Marshall Fire here in the Colorado Denver uh, metro area uh, here. And that extreme wind, wind event, I think, created some, some uh, significant pressure uh, interactions within the house that uh, literally helped cause the fire to jump from house to house. So do you yeah. get into pressure dynamics a, a bit? Yeah, so my background, not so much, but I have some really smart and experienced colleagues that are wind engineers and look at that. And, you know, just to kind of dovetail on what you mentioned there, the, the Marshall Fire, that was actually one of the incidents that, in addition to the laboratory experiments that we do at IBHS, we do field research and we uh, deployed a, a post-disaster investigation team out to Boulder to look at that. Um, and you were talking about how it was a wind-driven event and just to kind of acknowledge that is a common underlying pin for a lot of these destructive, highly destructive building to building fire spread, urban conflagration situations in that the wind, the wind driven fire carries the embers, you know, there's burning particles that can travel ahead of the fire. We talk about how they're the leading cause of ignition, but absolutely when you get into the built environment, you think about building to building fire spread, how important wind is in, in conveying that, um, you know, so I'm not as familiar with the, the internal pressure dynamics. Uh, I, I think a lot about how wind flows around the building and complex geometries and creating eddies areas to accumulate debris, which accumulates embers, which creates small fires, which can ignite a home. Um, and again, the underlying pin is that those wind-driven events um, can lead to those destructive wildfire incidents. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, along with, with the eddies and whatnot, the, the windward side, positive pressure, the leeward side, negative pressure, those pressure dynamics transfer within the building. So uh, these these particular houses at the Marshall Fire were built in the 80s and 90s and were were not very airtight. Uh, in some, I mean, we have some anecdotal evidence that they were in the range of uh, 10 or more air changes per hour, which is it's pretty leaky compared to the require the current day's requirement from the Energy Code, which is three air changes per hour. So that pressure dynamic, could, I think, could actually suck embers into the attics, into uh, the house, and uh, you're starting that fire uh, that way. Uh, 
So that that's interesting. You you were did you were you one of the people that came to Colorado to do this uh, post fire survey? I was yes. Um, so we um, a, a team of researchers from IBHS as well as some of our colleagues um, that help us take videography and aerial photos. Um, we're working with some local units, including um, Boulder County. Um, uh, wildfire Partners, which is a program across Boulder County, which um, you know builds on the research of IBHS to implement mitigation actions and and their own form of designations for for residents there. And so we partnered with those groups um, after the the incident, the the fire was all but extinguished, um, to go in and do damage assessments, essentially look at buildings that were damaged. And some also destroyed, um, but you know that kind of leads me down the path of when we think about how wildfire impacts buildings. It's different than wind. It's different than some of the other perils where you can talk about a percentage of the damage is, is destroyed or a percentage of the building is impacted. Oftentimes, wildfires damage mode is binary. You either have an entirely unaffected or what appears to be unaffected home or a completely destroyed home. There's very little partial damage, um, and that's kind of some of the the self propagating features of fire and, and so we saw that and so when we're doing those post-disaster investigations what we're looking for is almost a line of demarcation where you have one home that is destroyed next to a home that's maybe mostly damaged and then the other side of it is unaffected and a lot of times we can attribute that you know change in 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 destruction to the defensive actions, whether it be firefighters or, or other um, emergency responders, they will do something. And really importantly, the building features. So, you know, you may have combustible siding homes destroyed, and then it gets to a home with a non-combustible siding, um, with tempered glass, more resilient windows and ember and flame resistant vents. And, and so that building itself doesn't ignite and it doesn't act as a domino. Okay, interesting. Um, when you talk about a building that's damaged, uh, does smoke damage uh, uh, count or is it only a building that's been charred uh, in essence by the fire but hasn't been hasn't burned down? Yeah, that's a really good question and I'll say that I think smoke damage counts if we're using that word um, as damage. It's more challenging it to, to, to quantify and determine is it or isn't it. Um, but with that said, this is an area that IBHS and others are trying to better understand. Again, you know, when you think about fire damage, if something is burned, there's that visual indicator. And that's pretty kind of clear if they'll say it. Um, in terms of smoke damage, it's it's sometimes visible. Sometimes you have the residue of smoke. A lot of times there's an, there's an odor aspect of it. And so it's a bit more challenging. But but to the point that you talked about, um, you know, what we have have historically looked at is primarily the, the fire damage while also acknowledging and looking ahead to how smoke which can travel even further beyond the fire perimeter can impact the built environment yeah we we seem to have a, a number of cases of a pretty severe smoke damage in a lot of houses and it's interesting that there aren't the same type of resources available uh, to those homeowners as there are to homeowners who lost their entire house in terms of trying to recover and, and become whole again uh, in their, their houses. Uh, and we, we also have some anecdotal emphasis uh, or evidence, I guess, that tighter building em envelopes uh, had significantly less smoke damage than uh, these older homes that were out there. So. 
I, I don't know if you if you had a chance to look at any of those houses or not. Yeah, I didn't look at any in particular, but I would agree with that kind of mental framework and that anecdotal evidence, having not seen it myself. But but it makes sense. You know, you think about how, again, embers, these larger particles can get into the building and ignite something. Well, smoke is but even smaller particles. You know, smoke has particles they are just even smaller. And so, you know, if we have ember resistant vents that aren't going to let in those larger embers that's still going to allow some amount of smoke to get in you talk about the air tightness of buildings right there's just this natural air exchange and where you have air exchange you can probably have smoke entry and i agree with you i think you know when we think about construction maybe not so much materials but you know the system and the ceiling um thinking about uh, mitigating against preparing for um, and mitigating after smoke damage is something, again, you know, from the research perspective, we're trying to better understand and absolutely the building industry is surely thinking about. Yeah, interesting. Uh, we kind of jumped right into kind of the nitty gritty of some things. Uh, I wanted to step back one second and because I, you know, I, maybe all little children, I, I shouldn't say just boys, uh, all children kind of have this fantasy of being a firefighter uh, what's it like actually going through uh, uh, training and whatnot to become a fireman? Yeah, so, you know, like I said, at my fourth birthday, I got to have it at the firehouse and get to meet the firefighters, both men and women, and, you know, sit in the, the seat of the engine and ride around. And that kind of instilled the, that's what I wanted to do. And so at 18 years old, when I was legally an adult, um, I joined a local volunteer fire department in the state of Maryland. We actually have a very robust um, firefighter and emergency responder training system through the university. And so I was able to take my 100 plus hour firefighter training and emergency medicine medical technician training. Um, and so I was responding to incidents the same way that the career departments around us were. And, and you know, for me personally, it was um, self-fulfilling because I was able to help others and I was able to, you know, see the tangible benefits of me knowing how to handle an emergency medical situation or me, you know, being able to operate as part of a team to respond to, you know, a, a food on the stove type fire. And so that was, that was super gratifying. The training was hard. Um, you have to mean up to keep up with it that's the other side of it you know it's not just you get trained and you know there's the continuous training um through college i actually lived at the firehouse and so you know that's kind of how i paid my my room and board by responding to calls at two o'clock in the morning when i wasn't staying up doing homework but i, I think you know in addition to being you know very fulfilling for myself i stay attached or close to the fire service now as a volunteer here in the carolinas where i work um, it gave me a really important, you know, base level of understanding to talk about fire dynamics inside of a structure. And I was in classes understanding the theory and the physics and the engineering behind it. But I was also observing that with my own eyes in training fires, um, you know, in responding to the incidents. And so I think combining those two, the fire service kind of hands-on experience with the, the education in school, the engineering, the kind of theoretical understanding was what kind of got me to where I am today. Yeah. Can you um, explain a little bit about fire engineering and kind of the science of fire and how, how it works and spreads and, and whatnot? Sure. 
So, you know, thinking about fire at, at its base stage is combustion. So we can think about the fire triangle or fire tetrahedron, however advanced you want to get. You have fuel, oxygen, and heat. If you take away any one of those, you don't have fire anymore. Um, you know, in school, you know, I've got my four-year bachelor's degree. We take a lot of classes ranging from chemistry, because there's a chemical reaction side of fire, to physics, to understanding fluid dynamics and heat transfer. And it kind of culminates in, you know, again, this phrase I keep using, fire dynamics and it's, it's this it's this dynamic effect you know if we think about you know an idealized state you know in physics you think about you know a spherical cow in a vacuum or something like that fire is the total end of that spectrum it's turbulent it's chaotic it's ever-changing and so kind of need this you know kind of breadth of understanding um, another important part of fire engineering a lot of times is not just understanding the hazard let's call that the flame you know but how do we mitigate against that and in the built environment you know if we detect a fire early we can do something about it um, another important thing in you know fire dynamics or fire engineering inside a building is getting people out if there is a fire not only do you want to respond to that fire you want to get you know high value assets the people away from it so there's kind of those other things that you need to think about but you know it was a challenging program it was really interesting and and again i attribute it it's, it's a bit niche there's only a few schools in the in the world really that do it a lot of mechanical engineers and civil engineers practice fire engineering um, but to have a degree in fire protection engineering i think really gave me this foundation to again understand that breadth but also have the kind of core specific focus on on fire dynamics to know how important it is yeah um have you in your work, do you interact at all with the International Residential Code and its uh, fire sections, I guess? Uh, and specifically, you're, I see you shaking your head, so I'm going to ask uh, specifically with regards to um, fire stop and fire block uh, materials. To me, um, the fire... Well, it's not fire stop really. It's called fire blocking and draft stopping. And fire blocking, my understanding is it's it's supposed to resist the the spread of flame, and uh, uh, draft stopping is supposed to resist the the migration of air. Uh, but they, to me, it seems like in in the buildings, they they the code officials and others tend to conflate the two and and mix them up, and uh, potentially use uh, material where they shouldn't be using material, uh, specifically, you know, fiberglass bat or mineral wool as fire block that actually is air permeable. And I, I would think would actually uh, potentially uh, help the spread of fire. Yeah, so I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm familiar with um, the International Residential Code and, and the other ICC code, building code and so forth. And, and, and my role, that's actually some of the work that I do. I, I didn't talk about some of my other previous work experience, but prior to coming to IBHS, I actually worked at the National Fire Protection Association, NFPA, and I did standards yeah. development. And, you know, as we're talking about code stands here, just in a quick yeah. 10 seconds to talk about how eye-opening that was, not to just see the final document, but to see the process. And, and I see you 
you nod in your head, you're, yeah. you're probably all too familiar with that. But then to, you know, your specific question about fire blocking and fire stopping, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm aware of it. Um, I, I think I agree with, you know, the premise that you're describing there. It, it can be easy, fire stopping, fire blocking, and eh, they're interchangeable. But as you said, they're not necessarily the same thing. And it kind of gets to this bigger picture of, you know, what are we trying to do with this thing, this fire stop or the fire block? And, and if we understand what we're trying to do with it, and we understand the properties of a potential solution, like you described, mineral wool, you know, is that the right solution for the thing that we're trying to do? Not necessarily, and again, pardon the kid analogy here, putting a square peg in a round hole, because that's what we have a square peg. If it's a round hole, we should find the right solution for that. Yeah. And that's that's interesting because it it, for me, being uh, largely on the building science side and the and kind of the energy efficiency side, uh, uh, we think about controlling air and airflow for moisture management, uh, heat transfer, um, uh, oxygen for people to breathe and whatnot. But uh, we should really be bringing that into uh oxygen that's needed for the fire the three things that you were talking about that are needed for fire as well and some of these things it seems like they're um they're they're done in isolation from each other so fire fire code uh doesn't work well with energy code uh and whatnot uh, but they they should because it's basic it's the basic same science uh, really yeah, and I'll give an example of that. So, you know, again, when I think primarily about exterior fire getting inside the building, think about multi-pane windows and, you know, the multi-pane windows trap air between them. And so they have insulating properties that, you know, have surely increased um, energy efficiency. And a lot of times when we think about fire, it's kind of the same approach. Instead of having thermal insulation inside of the building, we essentially want to insulate the inside of the building from the, the thermal exposure outside. Um, it gets a little bit more nuanced when it's not just any type of glass, tempered pane glass being more resilient than annealed glass. But I totally agree with you that um, energy efficiency and wildfire resistance really do go hand in hand. And I think that these kinds of dialogues with you know the fire people and the building people like yourselves is what's going to keep moving that forward. Interesting. Great. So um, let's talk a little bit about the, the Insurance Institute for Business and, and Home Safety. Um, they have been very interested in the past with regards to wind-driven events, primarily hurricanes and tornadoes and whatnot, and uh, they've developed this uh, fortified home program. Um, what is their interest in fires and how have, have fires uh, kind of caught their attention? Sure. And so you mentioned the Fortified program, and, and it's really kind of a, a cornerstone of IBHS as an organization and what we're known very well for. Another thing that as an organization we're known for, and, and this goes back to primarily 2010, 2011, when we um, opened the research center, is the research that we do. And we do research in high wind and wind driven rain events, which is kind of covered by Fortified, but we look at other hazards, including hail, severe convective storms, and wildfire. So for the past decade plus, we've been conducting full-scale research at the research center and in the field, trying to understand, again, experimentally at a science fundamental level, you know, how are buildings and building components vulnerable 
and what can we do, what material design choices can be done to make them more resilient. And so in the wildfire space over the past decade plus, um, we have been supporting programs like FireWise, like the codes and standards of NFPA and others um, to, to make homes and, and make requirements for construction more resilient. Things that homeowners can do like defensible space, um, all of those things are, are kind of been encapsulated by the research that we've done. And, and most recently, um, we have taken the research that IVHS has done, the research of the, of the rest of the science community and our understanding, looked at the program of Fortified and how it has taken the science and research for wind and wind-driven rain and created this designation program that can designate this building, this structure was constructed in such a way, and those such ways is based on known science and research that it will be more resilient to those events, taking that same approach for wildfire and come up with wildfire prepared home which is a designation program similar to Fortify in that a home, the building and the parcel around it can be designated by IBHS to say that we know that this parcel in the event of a wildfire will be more resilient to the potential exposure. Okay, so is the Insurance Institute a, uh, in essence, a nonprofit that's funded by, the, by different in insurance players that are in the insurance industry? That's correct. IBHS is a nonprofit organization. Um, we are funded by our members, and our members constitute the majority of the property insurance industry in the, insur uh, in the U.S. And so we have members that are primary carriers. You can think of whoever your home insurance is. They're probably one of our members. It also includes the reinsurance industry, who the, the primary carriers work with, as well as kind of this ancillary or, or other members like brokers and technology firms that help inform the insurance industry. So IBHS is funded by our members. Our members represent the property insurance industry. Um, and, and, and that funding supports, again, the work that we do, which ultimately aims to better understand how natural hazards impact the built environment. And through that understanding, develop ideas and systems and programs that can recognize more resilient structures and help to build more resilient communities. Yeah. It is the ultimate objective uh, to try to get more of these, these houses that are being built, uh, for example, to be wild, wildfire prepared homes and to, to obtain that certification so that the, the insurance rate would be lowered or? So, so our goal- To insure, I guess. Yeah, I think our goal is to, you know, encourage new construction and existing construction um, to make changes, sometimes very slight, in a way that are going to make them more resilient to the hazard. And, you know, in the idea of kind of working yourself out of a job in that if natural hazards no longer had such a negative impact on us as humans and the built environment, then then we've done our job. And so using the hurricane example, when, when hurricanes hit area where many of the homes are built to the fortified standard and, and most of those homeowners are able to go back in and live in their homes, you know, that that's a success for us. And from a wildfire prepared program perspective, you know, it's the it's the reality that wildfire is a natural phenomena um, we as humans have built in areas that have evolved to need fire and so the reality is that these homes and communities will be impacted by fire um, you know we hope and we aspire to get to the point where 
all of those homes are designated as wildfire prepared, but more importantly, they have done the things, they have built with the materials, they have done the things around their home such that the wildfire passes through, the ecosystem does its thing, um, and people have a home to move back into. Yeah, interesting. Um, so can you describe a little bit more about the research center and, and how this research is actually being conducted? Yeah, I, I can, and, and I have a smile on my face because the research center is, you know, near and dear to my heart. When I when I came to IBHS, you know, I think the analogy is of like a kid in a sandbox. That's that's really what the research center feels like. Um, you know, again, as a firefighter and and understanding fire, and you know, a little bit of a pyromaniac, the research center gives me the opportunity to safely, um, you know, study in a controlled way to do that. But it also, you know, gives us the opportunity to not just play with fire, but do in a way that, you know, can result in meaningful understanding. And, um, you know, again, thanks to the support of our members, we're, we're able to recreate at full scale with the fans a full-size single structure. And let me talk about why that's important. That's important because we- 21 seconds. Um, yeah. So you have a building that you can construct a, an entire full-size house inside of? You got it right. So think like an aircraft hangar. Um, we actually construct the building, a single family residence, you know, 12,000 plus square feet, uh, 1,200 square feet outside, and we roll it in to the test chamber. The test chamber is that aircraft size structure, and then feeding into the test chamber, we have a wall of fans, 105 fans, which all spinning can generate wind speeds in excess of 100 miles an hour. We don't get up to that speed for wildfire. That's more for the hurricane stuff. But when we bring that building inside, and we're able to generate the wind with the fans for wildfire. We're also able to see that airflow with embers. Again, those glowing particles that we know all the time. If you see any of these videos during a wildfire, you see umpteen thousands upon thousands of these. And, and so we see that into the flow with the full size scale structure. Structure. And this is really where, you know, that aerodynamics around the structure plays a role, because if you have a simple structure, you don't have as many areas for the embers to accumulate. As soon as you start adding complexities, and it could be as simple as, and every structure has this, where that vertical wall meets the ground and you have that nine degree, that's where embers are going to accumulate. So if you have combustible siding going all the way to the ground and those embers are starting to accumulate against it, that's where you get the ignition. And, and that's, you know, you don't necessarily know that unless you see it in the field, respond to fires, or if we're able to repeatedly recreate it in the lab. Yeah, that's interesting. It brings up two kind of questions for me. Uh, one is, uh, do you do a blower door test on the house before you test it to see how airtight the house is? So I, I know that we have. Um, I know that that have been some of the areas of interest, particularly from my wind engineering and wind research colleagues, not necessarily as much from a, for the wildfire research that I primarily work on. But I, I think the short answer to your question is where the air tightness of the building matters. And I can give an example of that, some of the vent research that we've done, where that matters, we, we have the capabilities and have done that in the past, yes. Yeah, it would seem, really important to to know because like i said in in the marshall fire area those houses were so leaky that i think the embers actually were sucked into the house uh there but and then the other kind of similar question is we're seeing uh, a continued move to have a ventilation space between the exterior sheathing 
and water resistant barrier of the house and the exterior cladding. And um, are some of the houses that you uh, burned and tested, have they had that, that uh, ventilation gap there for, for water drainage? But I imagine that the detail there needs to be done right and the gap size needs to be done right to ensure that embers don't uh, get sucked up into those spaces. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm aware of this kind of trend in the, in the building entry. I'll say that up to this point, I don't think intentionally, at least I know not intentionally, I don't think that has been an area of focus, but as you mentioned, it's a, it's a, it's a trend in the building industry that we're all too aware of. And it's something that we actively talk about um, for a future research project. And let me give you, you know, a case of point example. I talked about, you know, we've talked about on a couple of occasions, how you can have in these urban settings, building to building fire spread. Um, you know, a lot of times when we think about that, we think about the, maybe the first home that is burning and how intentionally it's burning and that neighboring structure that, you know, needs to withstand that intense fire. Um, it's not only the exterior cladding, on the exterior of that home that has not yet ignited, they might have a non-combustible cladding, but underneath that non-combustible cladding, they might have additional layers. And, and so some of those additional layers and the gaps are what you're talking about. So those are things that we're very much aware of. And those are the things that we need to incorporate and do incorporate in the research that, you know, as the building industry evolves and as we try to keep up with and even stay ahead of it, those are things that we, we definitely focus in on in the research. Great. Uh, before we started, it sounded like you just came in from a test that happened this morning. Uh, what kind of things were you focusing on uh, the test that you did today? Yeah, uh, earlier earlier this morning, way early hours, we actually did a pre-dawn test, and that's what we've been doing for this whole series is, um, you know, talking again about, you know, building spacing and building to building fire spread. And so this morning's experiment was we had a shed, so it's not a neighboring home. Um, it might be something on your property. It might be the woodshed that you have out in your yard. And it might be your neighbor's shed that they have abutted right up against their fence that is close to your home. Um, oftentimes, these accessory structures are are not thought of as you know needing to be as resilient as the primary structures. So, not saying that they are, but let's just assume that they're more susceptible to ignition. If that shed does ignite in the presence of wind, which we oftentimes see during these wildfires, again as we talked about, how far away does it need to be? from your home or your neighbor's home or the next closest home so that way when your shed is fully involved and fully burning um the flames and embers from it don't ignite your home and, and that's what we did this morning so we had a shed a very large shed 12 by 24 feet it was a wooden shed and we had representative fuel inside of it and we intentionally ignited it as it could ignite during a wildfire and in the presence of about a 30 mile an hour wind looked at the flames and embers from it how far could they travel and how far would it need to be so that way it didn't ignite the next nearest structure oh, interesting um you mentioned wind there um fire does fire itself create a wind uh it that's that's separate from the normal atmospherically wind? Yeah, it, it absolutely can. It talked about how fire triangle, fuel oxygen, heat, and how it needs oxygen. And, and again, some of the combustion reactions, it, it consumes oxygen and fire is self-propagating in that it needs to suck in air. You know, as those buoyant gases go up, fresh air comes in horizontally. So you think about some of these very large wildfires that have these huge plumes, they themselves are generating their own weather, as you described 
in draft wind, sucking it in because it, the fire needs that. Um, you know, in the case of the experiments that we do, we have introduced wind, but you could do this with a little candle experiments safely at home. You could realize that, you know, that that flame needs wind. One of the demonstrations that we often use to show this, and, and again, your listeners can probably look this up online, is, is the fire whirl. And so you have a small little pan of liquid fuel, and if you let it burn, it just looks like a campfire. It's just kind of a, a puffing pool fire. But if you put it inside a, a kind of an enclosure in such a way that air is only able to come in at right angles or in a certain way that creates the vorticity, the fire generates the indraft of wind. And that indraft of wind, because of the enclosure, creates the world. And that's how we can visualize that exactly, as you said, fire can create its own weather, it can create its own indraft, its own wind effects. Yeah. So it reminds me of uh, what we talk about, these convection convective loops inside a building cavity where the the tip of the fire would be releasing uh heat and energy that would take air up but then that air has to be replaced probably on the low side of the flame uh next to the the wax of the candle maybe uh there so you have this loop kind of going the feed itself interesting um so you're doing all this research um what are you finding and that has impacted the wildfire prepared home program. And what, what are the, the key components of that program? Sure, uh, you know, I think one of the, the underpins of the wildfire prepared program and a designation is that there's no one thing that you can do to a home or to your parcel that's gonna make, you know, make the most difference. You know, there are some things that are super important. And one of the really important things is the first five feet actually around your structure. And we'll talk about embers accumulating there, but that's not the only thing. And I'll use another example, it's your roof, right? You know, we think about how the ground can accumulate embers. Well, the roof, depending on the roof is kind of like a horizontal surface. So it itself can accumulate debris. And if you can accumulate debris, you can accumulate embers. And so the the core underpinnings of wildfire prepared home is a class a fire rated roof um class a is to the standard test method the most fire resistance going to perform the best under a fire scenario um having ember and flame resistant vents and we talked about how important it is to have those ember resistant vents because embers are traveling ahead of the fire and you talked about how the building system can actually suck in those embers if you have ember resistant vents it's not going to prevent all embers from coming in but because of the size opening only those small little particles are able to get in with less like that are less likely to ignite something um, and then the third component for the building is it talked about, again, if you have siding that comes to the ground, the bottom six inches of your exterior siding needs to be non-combustible. So that way, not if, but when embers accumulate and pile up there, there's nothing non-combustible that can lean up against. Those are the three building components. And then we round out with defensible space, which is really the, the, the center stone is that five feet of non-combustible. Again, just like we had the vertical clearance on the wall, we went five feet horizontally. So when embers land there, they don't have anything to ignite. If they ignite something, that's going to be a flame close to your home. Um, it's things like the fence that attaches to your home. If your fence attaches, that first five feet that attaches to your home needs to be non-combustible. So if you have an otherwise wooden fence, you need to replace that section with metal. And it talks about other things in defensible space outside of the five feet, spacing vegetation, spacing other fuels, such that you don't have this big buildup of fire if it were to spread to your home when it gets there. Wow, it really seems like 
uh, it's in essence there's so much correlation to the normal building codes and what 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 they're trying to do or at least what is and should be common practice out there you know for example uh, that five feet of space uh, gets to drainage of your 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 house and uh, what we see most often is gravel uh, so that sloped gravel away from the house uh, and then probably I think the the, the biggest thing is that uh, what people do after they buy the house uh, after it's been constructed because then you get you know people planning planting in that space and watering in that space uh, or attaching the fence like you're saying um, another thing that came up uh, for me in your your little description there was with regards to roof pitch uh, is a steeper roof uh, a better more fire resilient roof uh, because in essence uh, debris might not uh, stay on that roof as as much as easily I would say not necessarily, and, and the reason that I say not necessarily, and, and bear with me as I give kind of a nuanced answer here, is that, yeah, a steeper roof is less likely to accumulate debris, but another important component of the program that I didn't mention is not only do you need to meet the requirements at designation um, because of the changing environment that your home is experiencing, you need to do an annual landscape, you need to continuously maintain it. Um, but then going back to the pitch of the roof, you know, a more horizontal roof is more likely to accumulate debris. A steeper roof is more like a wall. And when we think about radiant heat transfer, a wall is going to receive more of that potential radiant heat from a flame. So again, that's a very nuanced answer. I would summarize to say that I don't think roof pitch is the most critical aspect. Talk about a class A fire rated roof. And you talked about a lot of things that are already being done. But the fortunate thing is that, that most residential roofs are already class A. All of the available asphalt shingles, which is the most common roof covering, um, are class A. When you think about metal roofs and tile roofs, a lot of those by assembly are also class A. So, so you're right. A lot of these things are already kind of baked into our traditional building material and technique. It is some of the other things that are really important. Like you said, a builder might create that five feet of gravel sloped away from the home, um, but then the homeowner might want to add vegetation there. Understandably so, but when you to recognize that while adding that there might look nice um, it, it creates a vulnerability and we can create less vulnerable more resilient structures that also look good yeah and that that particular example is not only vulnerability from fire but you uh, increase your risk of water damage uh, your foundation and and other things um, uh, with regards to roofs still uh, you mentioned metal roofs and, and clay tile roofs, uh, both of which I believe uh, require some some type of uh, vent space below them. Uh, how how are you are you actually calling out details to uh, close off that space or or ensure that embers aren't getting underneath those materials? Yeah, you're right, and and we do call out. So let's use the example, if we can, of a, of a of a barrel tile roof, which at the ends of it, you know, you have that essentially that opening you talk about, which you know air can get in now. You know, a lot of times construction, you know, even if you aren't thinking about fire, um, you might you know cover up those with which is actually called 
bird stopping because that's also a very common area for birds to come in and nest. And so thinking about bird stopping at the end of those tile roof is the same mindset of, you know, ember resisting those ends of those tile roofs. And yes, that is included in the wildfire preparedness program. Okay. And it's just a, a screening that's small enough that an ember, uh, an average size ember, I guess, wouldn't fit through? That's right. Yeah. So you can use, you know, an entirely non-combustible surface. Again, thinking about tile, maybe mortar, or if you don't want a solid surface, you do want that airflow. Um, one eighth inch metal mesh screen is specification for something that, as you said, is ember resistant. It's going to allow airflow. It might let in embers that are smaller than eighth of an inch, but we find that embers that are that small don't essentially have the ignition potential. So yeah, they might create a little bit of a mess that you have to clean up, but they're much less likely to cause an ignition. Great, great. And then uh, I think still with regards to roofs, uh, for vented roofs, you were talking about a, I think you were saying a vent resistant or a, a ember resistant venting system for, for ventilated attic spaces. What, what does that look like? Yeah, ember-resistant vents um, in both enclosed spaces like the attic or in the crawl space. Um, you know, there's a couple ways to achieve ember-resistant. There's actually an ASTM standard test method for evaluating products or assemblies for ember-resistance. Um, that standard test method uses negative pressure and ember sizes to see if they can get through. But, but ultimately, what we're trying to achieve is, as I've described a couple times here, is um, you want the permeability for air for that enclosed space, but you don't want large particles like embers larger than eighth of an inch to get in because they can cause an ignition. And so, you know, the, the low-tech solution as non-combustible corrosion-resistant, i.e. metal mesh, eighth inch or smaller, acts as that ember resistance. It allows the airflow, but it reduces the, the potential for embers that can ignite something to get in. Are, are there um, tiers of this program? Uh, because it would seem to me that a condition unvented attic space and, and or crawl space would be even more beneficial than a vented one that was guarded by an ember resistant vent. So the wildfire preparedness program has does have a, a base level designation, and again, that's what the requirements for a Class A roof, where you have venting, ember, or flame resistant, where you have combustible siding or any siding needs to be non-combustible six inches and the five feet. That's a requirement for any wildfire prepared home. Um, but in addition, there is a wildfire prepared home plus designation. And as you described, not so much with the, um, the vented attic, but things like having entirely non-combustible siding, things like having not having any wood fences, not just attached to your home, but even parallel to your home, those kinds of things can achieve the level of wildfire prepared home plus. But I'll say that the wildfire prepared home base designation really does address kind of the, the leading cause of home ignitions, which is embers. And so homes that meet that base designation are gonna be meaningfully more resilient um, although the plus homes are going to be even more so. Yeah. And just to be clear, the plus uh, designation uh, doesn't include unvented attics or uh, conditioned unvented crawl spaces. That's correct. You could have a wildfire prepared home or a wildfire prepared plus home that has an unvented attic, but that's not one of the requirements for either of those designations. Okay. Have you done research that 
demonstrates that there is an advantage to to those uh, types of unvented assemblies? We have not, uh, at least as far as I'm aware, IBHS has not, and, and I was actually am working on a, a somewhat related project and have done some literature review, and so I haven't. Um, you know, I think you're describing the the other benefits of an unvented attic, which I'm familiar with as well, but none specifically looking at the fire performance benefits. Um, you know, it's something that we're aware of again in the in the construction and building entry. Um, you know, it could surely have some benefits, but we also need to evaluate, you know, what are we doing to change the kind of thermal barrier aspects of it? What might we be adding? to allow it to be an unventilated attic that might yeah. change its fire performance. Not not leading the witness, but it's not an area we've looked at, but the one we should. Okay. Um, I wanted to move to the walls a little bit and ask some questions there. Um, you talk about the six inch space between siding and ground. Uh, that, from my understanding, that's pretty much a code requirement. Um, are you seeing that, that that's not being carried out uh, in the field? Yeah, um, as I read the, you know, the international model code and a lot of state and jurisdiction specific, I also see that as a requirement, but the reality is, um, you know, many of the homes that I look at it, you know, in wildfire prone states, it's, as well as my home um, in yeah. South Carolina, don't always have that vertical six inches. So I think it's the reality of um, understanding why it's in the code and for good reason and you know the end product of either a newly built home or a home that's been lived in for 10 20 30 years um, we yeah. don't always see that vertical six inch clearance yeah I could see the 30 year old house where the, the soil level has risen in essence or the house has sunk I guess but yeah for a new construction that's that's interesting when you talk about a um, uh, resilient siding and cladding, uh, what type of materials are you talking about? So when we think about it from a fire perspective, and again, it goes back to one of those words I used previously, it's about non-combustible siding. And so non-combustible is a, is a very well and specifically defined term that describes the performance of a material in the presence of you know, a heat environment, i.e. combustion, and that it won't combust. And so non-combustible siding includes things like fiber cementitious board, um, stucco, those are some examples of non-combustible siding. And those non-combustible siding and claddings are gonna be more resilient. Um, and, and, and we talked a little bit about the cladding and the exterior surface is important, but also the assembly of it because the, the broad surface of the wall may be non-combustible, but the details of where it does end six inches above the ground, that underneath area um, can be, may be a vulnerability. Yeah, I, especially we often see that uh, the exterior sheathing, which is generally a wood product, an OSB or plywood, uh, is hanging out over the foundation uh, there. So uh, down below, if you get on your knees, you can actually see that and then you have your non-combustible siding so you're saying that an ember could get could light you know debris there i guess and then ultimately light the sheathing behind the the non-combustible siding yeah so, that's the that's the scenario and you know yeah. and and ideally we wouldn't have that little vulnerability of that you know osb or plywood sheathing um but the other way that we can manage that is by again making sure it's at least six inches because 
we have never, at least I haven't seen a pile of embers six inches high and yeah. keeping that five feet area clear of debris. So as you said, you know, there's nothing for the ember to ignite. Now, all of these are kind of an idealized world. You know, one of the things that we haven't necessarily talked about is you may have done everything that morning at 8 a.m. You had the Saturday morning you cleaned around your home. Then a wind event comes through and it's going to bring the fire before it brings the fire it's blowing debris and so this is again going back to the wildfire prepared home program approach of kind of having layers of not just one thing but this system of approaches um, which yeah. all build on and work together to have a more resilient structure great um, i wanted to also ask about windows and you had talked about tempered windows and can you explain uh, the difference between a tempered window and a non-tempered window and um, and well, just explain the difference, I guess, and, and why you would want one over the other. Sure, and I'll, I'll, I'll preface it by saying I'm by no means a glass expert, mm -hmm. but, um, but what I understand is that a tempered window um, goes through a tempering process, which is actually a heat treating process. And, and when I think about tempered windows, and a lot of times people don't know, but people are oftentimes very familiar with safety glass. And so again, as I get it, as I understand it, the tempering process of an otherwise untempered pane of glass um, you know, heat treats it in such a way that creates safety glass. And so that if it were to fracture, it fractures into those small little pieces. That tempering process to create the safety glass also basically pre-treats the glass. And, and we know that tempered glass is more resilient to, to radiant heat or the, that, that form of heat flux than untempered glass. And so that's why we look for tempered glass windows, because even if they're not going to be exposed to direct flames, because you don't have any combustibles in that first five feet, if you do have some flames or combustibles outside of that, the radiant heat could be enough um, to break the glass. And then if you think about a broken glass window, that's just another opening for embers to get in. Yeah. Um, I was on a call yesterday that was uh, the people were recommending uh, not to install vinyl windows. Uh, so the basically the casing around the glass um, is is that something that uh, the wildfire prepared homes gets into? Yeah, and and you know this is really built on some of the work that my predecessor, Dr. Stephen Quarles, did, as well as others. Um, you know, and and again, I'll speak to it as well as I can. And it is that we talk about the resilience of the glass to the radiant heat and how tempered is more resilient than non-tempered. Um, but glass can break not only because of heat, but also because of mechanical stresses. And and as, as Steve has described it to me, it's when the vinyl gets soft from the heat and melts and it itself creates a mechanical pressure on the glass that in addition to the, the thermal energy that's coming in that's melting the vinyl, heating up the glass, um, can cause those vinyl frame windows to actually fail quicker than um, you know, non-vinyl frame windows. So let me talk about, you may still have vinyl frame windows that may perform better um, where you have a double hung window instead of just having vinyl across um, some windows have a metal reinforcement, and what that essentially does is mitigate that even though the vinyl softens because of the heat, that metal bar in between is not going to bend or not going to be as um, 
affected by the heat and create that mechanical stress. So I guess what I got the summary point there is, yeah, a vinyl window from the outside is a vinyl window and I would rather not have a vinyl window, but if it is going to be a vinyl window and it's double hung, having that metal reinforced bar can be really important and making that window less susceptible to failure from a fire. Uh, do we know through any testing which frame material is the most uh, uh, fire resistant? Would it be a wood clad or a fiberglass window frame? Yeah, so I think some work has been done in this space. Um, I'm not as read up as I could or should be, but I'll, I'll offer my two cents on it to say that um, a wood window is normal and that wood is inherently combustible. Um, you know, an aluminum frame window, aluminum has a melting point, but it's metal, I would say, is probably one of the better ones. If you did have a wood window, and I've seen this in some instances, a metal clad wood window, which I think you were describing there, is that maybe compromise in between of having, for aesthetic reasons, you might want the wooden frame window, understandably, the metal cladding on the outside is going to be more resilient to any of that flame or radiant heat that would impact the frame. Great. And then kind of last question on windows. Do you know if the tempered windows can have low E coatings and all the other energy efficiency details that a normal uh, glass window would have? I have seen some, but um, in terms of, you know, the performance, I can't speak to that. I, I think, you know, as you said there, having low E windows from an energy perspective is, is a trend that we're seeing. And I, I don't, Right now, I see a reason we couldn't have both tempered and low E screening. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's the best of both worlds. Yeah. Um, I wanted to jump back to one other component, um, which is the, the gutters uh, of the house. Uh, we're seeing more and more of these gutter guards and other things that are trying to keep debris out of uh, our gutters. Is, I, I'm guessing that that's uh, beneficial from a fire protection perspective. Yeah, having those gutter guards can be helpful in that it doesn't prevent debris from accumulating at that location, but instead of having to get up on a ladder and dig your hand in there and pull it all out, the gutter guard should reduce the amount of debris that gets in the gutter and then so hopefully cleaning it is easier again. You're still going to have needles or pine uh, you're going to have pine needles or leaves falling on top of it but hopefully a gutter guard reduces the amount of effort that is needed to clean it and ultimately that's what when we think about wildfire preparedness we're getting towards is it's not the gutter itself that's going to ignite it's the debris inside of it and so if a gutter guard can help with the maintenance of a gutter um absolutely that's good and and where you are going to have a gutter guard it should be a metal gutter guard okay and is that uh, specific, are gutter guards uh, specifically called out in the program? They are where you have a, a, a gutter, it should be a metal gutter. And for the wildfire prepared home plus designation, you should have a metal gutter guard. Right. So um, how, how is the program implemented? Um, is, it, is it certified in any way by a third party or, or something? Yeah, the, you know, the, the implementation of the program is really important. And let me talk about that a little bit. So similar to Fortified, the Wildfire Prepared Home designation is a program run by IBHS. And so the designation, the certificate 
is between IBHS and in the case of WAPOC paired home to homeowner, we maintain the database of who has applied, who has an active designation. And with the WAPOC paired home program, you need to re-up it every three years. Um, in addition to us IBHS managing the program, we use third-party inspectors to do the inspection that a home and its property are up to the standard. Um, and in addition to that, we, we look to the homeowner, the, the, the designation holder, every year um, they need to submit an annual landscape review because as we talked about with a couple examples here, you may not change your roof every three years, which is the duration of a designation, but surely some of those shrubs that you might have trimmed back are going to grow back. And surely some of that debris that you had cleaned out may have reaccumulated. So for, to keep uh, and maintain a, a designation every year, the designee, the homeowner, needs to submit an annual landscape review, which shows, again, critically that first five feet and on the remainder of the parcel that your home and the roads around it are staying up to the standard. And, and obtaining that designation and keeping it up to date should, should provide the homeowner a reduction in their um, insurance fees? So we, we think that a designation is a way to have a conversation with your insurance agent. Um, and all the things that I'm talking about here from doing a home assessment to, you know, guiding a homeowner to having those conversations and one could learn more at wildfireprepare.org and all the stuff that we're talking about here from the technical standards to all those components to some of the point to the research which has informed it to some of the other outreach efforts that we've done again you can find more at wildfirefair.org um, and, and again we really feel that um, a designated structure meaningfully has a lower likelihood is meaningfully reduced the risk compared to a non-designated structure and that meaningful reduction in risk absolutely warrants a conversation with your insurance agent with your insurance carrier to that show, demonstrating to them that you've done that and and the, the the additional thing that I'll say to that is that our members the insurance industry support IBHS and support us standing up with and managing this WAPOC program program. So um, it is up to them to have those individual discussions with their policyholders, but they have supported the last decade plus of research, what has culminated in this program, and they support I, us IBHS in the way that we're doing it, using third party inspectors, requiring the annual landscape review as a system as a whole. Um, you know, again, we think meaningfully um, can impact uh, a homeowner and, and how they live their lives. Yeah. But it's not uh, their involvement and their interest in, in helping to create these programs isn't necessarily um, to lessen their risk and therefore pass, pass those types of savings on. Well, I guess it's probably to lessen their risk as an ins insurance company, but not necessarily to pass that savings along. It might or might not uh, pass it on. It's, it's yeah. Better. Yeah, I, I think the way that I think about it is our members support the work that we do and the work that we do ultimately aims at making homeowners and business owners and their structures more resilient and, and, and right in the in the event of an incident, a more resilient structure is less likely to be damaged. And so you can kind of see the ramifications of that from an insurance claim perspective. But at the end of the day, it's the reality that in the case of wildfire, it's a natural phenomenon. It's going to happen. How do we make buildings and communities more resilient to that reality? In the case of wildfire, where a house has burnt to the ground and is being rebuilt, 
Uh, do carriers um, require that they rebuild to the wildfire prepare home standard? Um, up to this point, I'm not sure. I can talk a little bit more about the details of the program in that it was launched, um, not to date this podcast, um, but just about a month ago, actually a month ago to the day, um, yeah. uh, June 22nd uh, in 2022, it was just launched. And so I don't know if there have been any instances of that. I will say that we are working with, you know, jurisdictions like the town of Paradise, in California, which was severely impacted by the 2018 campfire. So at the town level, they have ordinances that essentially, um, you know, require new construction to as built, you know, keys over to the homeowner would be a wildfire prepared home. And we're also working with builders that are doing it in paradise and other places to, you know, again, not only build to the code, but do those additional things. Whereas like if a builder was going to put up a fence, put up a fence that doesn't have a combustible section attached to the home. So that yeah. way, when the homeowner moves in, they don't have to change that out. It's already taken care of. Yeah. No, it seems like it would benefit the insurance industry and kind of society as a whole that we don't build back the, the you know, exactly the same, uh, that we take these programs fortified and wildfire prepared home uh, into account at the, in these disasters and build back better. Uh, it's going to help everybody out there. Um, one last question. You, you brought up, uh, I think, a different program called FireWise. Is FireWise related to wildfire prepared home in some way? So FireWise is a program that is funded by the U.S. Forest Service and administered by NFPA, uh, my former employer, National Fire Protection Association. And FireWise is a, is a community program in which a community and, and what constitutes a community can vary. It can be from a certain number of houses to a whole town to a whole jurisdiction. Um, and a FireWise community is one that has taken action to be again, you know, use the phrase, be more prepared. It doesn't necessarily indicate what has been done at a parcel by parcel level, but absolutely a wildfire prepared community has done things as demonstrated with fuel reductions, with a practice of evacuation, those kinds of things at the community level that are really important, um, that, that really work in synergy with at an individual parcel level. And I'll say that um, we at IVHS work closely with NFPA and their FireWise program. Um, you know, we are a key contributor to the science-based knowledge that they disseminate and they're an important partners of ours as we talk about you know getting out the science and getting out you know how do we not only get communities designated and get firewise certifications but also have ideally all of the homes in that community wildfire prepared homes great well this has been a really jam-packed full uh, episode and I really appreciate all your knowledge and and willingness to share that with us. Uh, thank you so much for your time and, and being on the BuildCast. It was great. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity, Robbie. Thank you for listening to this episode of BuildCast, brought to you by BuildTank, Inc. To see show notes and learn more about our guests and other episodes, visit the BuildCast page of our website at www.btankinc.com. Thank you, Ben Sound, for our music and to Ashley Owen for editing it. And you, for your encouragement and guidance in the creation of BuildCast. You can listen to BuildCast on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite platform. If you enjoyed our show and are willing, 
please take a moment to subscribe and review BuildCast, which will help others find it more easily. Thanks again for listening, and please let us know who you would like to hear next and if you have any suggestions to make BuildCast better. Until next time, be safe and continue to think 0 to 360.